0: I think if local theaters can do the table stakes, like we've mentioned, of great picture, great sound, and just clean facility, you have a leg up because you can instill loyalty much more uh, within the the local community just naturally. And it's, as we grow, that's my number one challenge. You know, we know we're a chain, but can we see ourselves as a loose collection of local theaters?
1: This is the box office podcast. I am your host Daniel Luria, the editorial director of box office pro the only publication in North America exclusively focused on covering the movie theater industry once again joined by our co hosts Rebecca Pauly deputy editor of box office pro and Sean Robbins chief analyst at box office pro. In this week's episode, insights from a live webinar that we hosted with Anthony Laverde, CEO of Imagine Entertainment, Tim League, co-founder and executive chairman of Alamo Drafthouse, and Bob Bagby, CEO of b and Theaters. But before we get to that point, Rebecca, Sean, how are your weekends? Did you guys get to catch anything in the movies? I know the Oscars happened. We'll go over a quick recap of that in a little bit, but let's start with the positive, I guess, if we had any positive movie-going experiences this weekend,
2: uh, I, I did, in fact, on the, on Friday night. I saw The Last City, and I, and I know uh, Sean we're going to go over the the box office for that. But I really enjoyed that film. Like I, I thought I would enjoy it because I like Sandra Bullock, I like Channing Tatum. But I, uh, it was it was better than I thought it even would be. You know, it was funny, it was romantic, it was sexy. It was. I sound like I'm writing the the Blu-ray. You know. Blurred for the back cover, but I
1: really enjoyed it. Sean, did you get to catch anything at the movies? I didn't get to go to the
3: theater. I spent most of last week making a beeline to catch up on Oscar nominees, so I I did a lot of that at home while doing chores. I managed to watch uh, Drive My Car and King Richard, ironically enough, was the last one I ended up watching, uh, which both I enjoyed. So that was pretty much my movie weekend up until Sunday night.
1: I'm so glad that The Oscar nomination for Best Picture for Drive My Car has opened uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi to uh, a wider audience, really. This is a filmmaker that's been making fantastic films out of Japan for the last decade, really, in terms of international appeal. Breaking through from the art house to the mainstream. Guys, Drive My Car was available not only in streaming services, but major circuits in the United States playing this three-hour adaptation of a Murakami novel, let's say, not the easiest three hours to sit through, Sean, at home? Or how, how did you find the sort of three hours to say let's go with this uh, literary adaptation from japan
3: uh it was it was forced it was delayed and i say that because i knew that the, the, the runtime going into this i pretty sure it was the longest of the best picture nominees so i kept putting it off and putting it off and by the time friday afternoon hit i just said to myself you know what i need to watch this because i want to be able to sit down and really immerse myself into it rather than get to sunday afternoon and not having seen it yet and really feel like I just have to watch it. And I'm glad I did. Like it was, It is a long film, but it, it, it uses its time to tell what's really a beautiful story. I was kind of nervous that it would be a lot more of a, a depressing film, so to speak, just knowing the synopsis. But the journey those characters take, I, I really am glad I took the time to sit down and watch it.
1: I think it's interesting what, what Sean mentions and his experience in discovering and, and watching a movie like Drive My Car that really rose to prominence through this Best Picture nomination. And now that the field is getting widened, oddly enough, that's a very different experience than what most audiences faced with this year's Best Picture winner, Coda from Apple. This is a title that won at Sundance in 2021. Apple spent $25 million acquiring the title, released it, you know, between quotation marks, I'm not sure we can call that a theatrical release, really, in, what was it, the summer, last summer?
2: It feels like, I mean, we. it's odd when we were talking last summer about how Apple, you know, treated this film. I mean, it, it kind of felt like they just dumped it, and uh, I, I never would have thought we'd, we'd be saying that it won Best Picture. I I haven't seen the film. I, I have no thoughts as to its quality. I'm, I'm extremely happy for it, that a film... Um, you know with a message like coda is is I mean you gotta imagine that this is going to get more people to watch it albeit I, I probably so. on on Apple <laughs> Apple TV I guess <laughs> well, and I, I think it. that's
1: where I was uh, where I was going with this it's very disappointing that a movie that by and large could have really accessed a wider audience didn't get the opportunity to do so let's not forget Rebecca this is a title that we singled out as the most disappointing story in 2021 really it was i would have to say among the biggest failures in the film industry how apple handled the lack of a theatrical release of this title going as far as telling specific theaters in different parts of the country your market isn't important enough your market isn't big enough for a theatrical release we'd rather people watch it on our streaming service sean what's your take on a movie like this do you think CODA could have succeeded theatrically, had Apple given any interest in releasing this in theaters?
3: Without a doubt. Uh, I think this is the kind of movie that any audience will sit down and watch and just walk out feeling good. And that's what people want to see a lot of the time. That's especially what people want to see right now. And it's just such an uplifting story. It goes into the background of of a, of a culture that not a lot of people know enough about. and. Those those things, I think, really coalesced into making this the kind of movie that, pre-pandemic, would have been the sort of film that released around the holidays, maybe expanded in the winter, and would have had a very strong box office run under, quote-unquote, traditional circumstances. I really wish that this movie had had that opportunity.
1: And we talk about diverse movie-going audiences. One of the co-stars and producers in this film is Eugenio Derbez one of the biggest stars in Mexico. We've seen Derbez have massive, massive hits here in the US through Pantelion titles in the past. This is something that I completely agree with you, Sean. I'm glad that it won Best Picture. I think it means something that it did. I'm happy for it. But the fact that Apple really didn't prioritize putting this in enough screens, In theory, I guess having something available in streaming makes it more accessible, but it's very telling for me, guys, that for audiences wanting to see the best picture nominees in a movie theater across the country, the three hour long Japanese drama is easier to find on a screen than the very audience friendly American indie movie coming out of Sundance.
2: And yeah, Daniel, you have to imagine that the availability and the mindshare of the nominated films comes into play when you consider that this year's Oscar telecast was the second least viewed of all time. Uh, you know, and part of that, you know, we're still in kind of in this pandemic era where fewer films are, are being released and fewer of those quote unquote major award films, which give some of these more independent titles the opportunity to sneak in and get awards that they probably wouldn't have in a non-pandemic year. So that's good. But uh, I think there's one thing that people will remember from this year's Oscars, and it's not CODA
1: and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's good that this is the second lowest oscars telecast in history a completely reprehensible and embarrassing event unfolding in los angeles as will smith going up on stage and physically assaulting chris rock the academy awards instituting a code of conduct in 2017 in the wake of the me too movement to really just ensure everyone's on the same page on proper behavior at the academy awards obviously that was thrown out the window no one really seemed too bothered by it uh the gentleman that physically assaulted the other gentleman on stage was able to stay there go up make a speech uh yeah incredible events unfolding deeply embarrassing i think for the industry certainly a low point in the history of the academy awards if you want to find out more hot takes on that, you can literally go anywhere. We're not going to go into a lot more detail anywhere on other that.
2: than us. And yeah, we are exactly
1: proud of you not to go through that. Yeah. <laughs> this is really taking an event that used to be a cultural cornerstone and really denigrating it to the point of being really part of the conversation of reality TV show culture, the sort of coverage that you'll find in the checkout aisle of supermarket magazines. So as, as we've said, we're not gonna get too much into detail of that other than it was uh, really extremely unfortunate to, to have a night like this end in such a scandal.
2: And you know, the, as, as each year's Oscars and it behooves us uh, to start looking ahead to the potential nominees and winners for next year's Oscars, which films are really gonna break through the cultural conversation uh, to that end. Sean Morbius is coming out.
1: Yes, finally. <laughs> <laughs> the movie no one no one has been waiting for after 15 release delays
2: apologies ap- apologies for the morbius <laughs> snark it's not you know it's it, i love a good superhero movie i'm a big fan of, of venom and venom let there be carnage so i know the reviews for this one haven't been great but sean what are we looking at in terms of a range of for their opening weekend
3: I hate to say I think the range is shrinking in a way that we don't really like to see as release gets closer because of a lot of reasons. Uh, This is a movie that the internet and fans have really had a lot of caution when it comes to watching every single trailer that's come out. We haven't seen that kind of excitement that I think the Venom films drove as they got closer to release, or certainly spider And we've seen
2: trailers definitely try to kind of latch on to the cultural yeah. phenomenon that was No Way Home. And and, and Venom with like, oh, Easter eggs this is taking place in the same universe. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see because we don't even know what the official critics reviews will be, that the embargo goes down on Wednesday, uh, which will be a day after we record this. But we've heard the early reception from the unofficial uh, channels. And it, yeah, I think just combined with the expectation and the fact that, A lot of other films come out right after it to steal attention away. This is this is probably a movie that maybe at one point had a shot at at around a sixty million opening because of that Marvel name. I think the Marvel name still counts. I think it probably still gets it over forty million, but it's looking like that forty to fifty range is is probably going to be about where it lands.
1: Now I had no idea what this character was, what its history is until I went to Cinemacon last year, saw that footage in the Sony presentation. I described it at the time as Evil Super Dracula. I insist. I think that would be a better title for this film. At least I would know what (laughs) I'm walking into if I pay a $12 ticket. Sean, what's the familiarity or the popularity of this character with audiences? Does anyone care? Is this even a, a villain that people can get excited about? like a Venom, like a Joker, something that the nerds are going to really freak out about and and buy tickets to come back.
3: Yeah, it's it's definitely on the lower scale. If we look at anti-hero movies that have done well recently, like Venom and like Deadpool, even compared to those, Morbius is not nearly as well known, or at least among fans, not nearly as popular. So it already comes in with, if you want to call it a disadvantage on that end, a disadvantage. You know, having the Marvel name again—I I think that's something we're all going to repeat. That—that's—that's that's the selling point here, and Sony has made that very clear in the marketing. If—if uh, if this were not attached to that universe in some way, we would be even more conservative in expectations on this one.
1: And I think obviously the the wasted potential here is the appeal of its star, Jared Leto, who has a little bit of a Nicolas Cage light thing going on after movies like House of Gucci and his performance in the Apple TV Plus series we crashed there's a quirkiness there that might have been fun venom i think had that aspect where venom seems like a movie that didn't intend to be as bad as it was but that was actually really fun and the sequel played into that yeah uh 40 million dollars it'll it'll keep theaters packed which is good but um do you think this can be a franchise play sean i mean what's the number it has to hit for there to be morbius costumes and halloween and sequels and toys
3: Oh, that's tough. Yeah, uh, that's a really tough call. And I think it'll come down more to that global number because domestically, it just is not in a great position. I think if this were the, if if Sony had kept this movie opening in winter and didn't have as much competition, it might have some more leg room, but it it doesn't have that. It will have Sonic and Fantastic Beasts immediately next month. So it really is going to rely on that international play. I, I would think Even though it's, uh, let's say it costs 75 million to produce even after marketing, I I would think Sony wants this to hit at least 300 million worldwide to consider a potential sequel. Worst case scenario, they can still bring this character back. They're clearly building a universe around these Spider-Man related characters. So the question is, will, will we see Morbius come back in somebody else's movie or his own movie? And It's hard to tell
2: Sean I'm interested to hear from you uh, what you think Morbius's competition is going to be next week from the holdover titles that came out this past weekend um, and, and none of which really seem like they're they're gonna try to hit the same audience certainly the Lost city and Morbius don't seem like they're going for the same crowd
3: yeah I think there's a lot of counter programming there the biggest hit lost City will have is the fact that it will lose premium screens that will cut into grosses to some extent, but I think the reception for it will really benefit it honestly for, for any moviegoers that are considering seeing either of those films this coming weekend that didn't already see the lost city. This could be one of those types of situations we haven't seen very often in the recovery part of this pandemic so far where a new opener comes out and it might not necessarily be the first choice for, for, for moviegoers. It's, it's very challenging to, To kind of look at that perspective now that we're getting back into a groove of these high profile releases on a virtually weekly basis beginning this spring and i think the lost city is kind of the early example we'll see of one of those movies that sticks around for a while as we go into summer
1: and that opening weekend performance like you mentioned last week sean was crucial not only for where we are in the calendar right now but for how the schedule is going to play out 56 percent of that opening weekend audience being female and 46% of the audience being above the age of 35. And now moving on to that number three spot that Rebecca mentioned earlier, RRR, the Telugu language title finishing in third place, massive overperformance. Sean, that $9.5 million debut from around 1200 screens. Do we have any background on how these titles usually hold in the marketplace? It usually depends,
3: but I think the general trend has been that they're pretty front loaded in this film's particular case. That's going to be true because a lot of those sales were for Thursday night. Uh, But either way, I mean, whether we call it front loaded or not, like you said, it's, it's a huge success. It again goes to show the necessity of having that variety of content in theaters that this is a film that was probably overlooked by a lot of people. We didn't even offer a forecast on it until last week. And That's very typical for these types of releases, but at the end of the day, this is a huge overperformance, as you said, and certainly the kinds of releases theaters will be looking for more of going forward.
2: Speaking to variety, I mean, this last weekend we had kind of a a big... Exciting fra the uh, Hollywood rom com. We had an international film, RRR, and then we had from A24, the more kind of kooky independent film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, from the Daniels, the directors who did Swiss Army Man a few years back. That film debuting uh, to 509,000 from only 10 screens giving it a $50,000 per screen average, which is the highest so far of the year uh, for a specialty title. Daniel, I was really interested to see that, um, to coincide with its national expansion or leading up to its national expansion rather on April 8th. This film is getting some IMAX screenings, which in the past have been pretty much reserved for, well, the Morbiuses of the world.
1: And you know, I actually have a ticket to go see this on IMAX this week. IMAX actively working with event cinema titles, with concerts, and now going to the specialty market, something as niche like this title that only opened in 10 screens with a massive 50,000 per screen average. Sean, Rebecca, to give you guys context, the opening weekend of Spider-Man No Way Home last December, that per screen average was 59,000. Sean, looking at that April 8th nationwide expansion of a movie like this, it would be irrational of us to expect this to be even a $50 million film. But what do you think the ceiling is for this movie?
3: I think this past weekend raises the ceiling. It's very hard to tell how high this can go. Typically, we've seen A24 releases. They have a very loyal following. I think they've built their brand very well, and that's why they've been able to release films wide like this a lot more often. Typically we would see their movies opens anywhere between the high single digit millions to maybe middle of middle teens. I think this falls into a similar range prior to this weekend's results. Uh, but it's also a movie that I've, I've been increasingly bullish on. I think it's marketed really well. I think it has some of the most mainstream potential out of the a 24 releases up to this point. The only thing working against it is the fact that so much content comes out in April, it's almost an embarrassment of riches with how many films are going to be coming out within the next few weeks but this really could be the test of the water of how many can survive at the same time. And this is a counter-programmer through and through, so I wouldn't be surprised to see it go above expectations.
1: And we'll be seeing what those midweek IMAX numbers are for everything, everywhere, all at once, as we go into the weekend. And as we talk about premium screens, premium auditoriums, this premiumization of the movie-going experience, optimizing off-peak, Rebecca, we've been Saying these buzzwords on the podcast for the last year, because that's really been such a drive of what Exhibition has leaned on in reengaging audiences with the pandemic. These were also concepts that our Exhibitor guests at our Giants of Exhibition webinar shared with our audience when we spoke with them.
2: Absolutely, Daniel. And one of those was uh, Tim League, the co founder and executive chairman of Alamo Drafthouse, a uh, kind of quirky Texas based dining chain that um, is more associated with, I would say, aesthetic and programming. It's not really traditionally thought of as the kind of cinema that you would go to and find a huge screen. Uh, however, shortly before the pandemic, they did launch their own in-house PLF brand called The Big Show, um, which they are now kind of ramping up on. And it was great to hear from Tim about uh, what thought went into establishing The Big Show to really mesh well with Alamo's very well-established brand.
1: So let's take it away here in our feature segment, beginning with Alamo Drafthouses, Tim Lee.
0: We made the decision that we wanted to write our own specifications for what it meant to be premium large format. So we have a pretty strict guideline in terms of light level, um, you know, there's only a couple sound options and then the size of the screen. And we also wanted to have fun with the brand. We like we like our, our branding on the big show, uh, kind of harkens back to something's very important to me, the, the age old traditions of Ballyhoo and and exhibition. So um We've had great success with it, and so whenever we're going to be building new units or taking over others where the where we have room to put in a PLF, it's it's an integral part of anything new that we're going to do. It's the results have been strong, and uh, the response from our guests has been amazing, especially for the tentpole movies like a movie like Batman. Watching it in PLF, it's it's there. There is no comparison to have the immersive picture and uh, the almost is equally important uh, the immersive sound. So it's it's very much a part of the the roadmap forward for our expansion.
2: And Daniel, uh, along with Tim League, we have representatives from two other chains, those being Bob Bagby of b theaters and Anthony Laverde from Imagine Entertainment. Um, in this conversation, we really wanted to get a nice variety of sort of different types of chains uh, in the North American market. b obviously, that is the sixth largest chain in North America by screen count. So their relation to premium large format that might be a little different than an Alamo, for example.
1: Yeah, uh, Bob Bagby from BB Theaters joining us and talking about not only PLF, but his circuit's involvement in bringing in different movie going concepts in their locations. For those for our listeners who aren't too caught up with the movie theater business here in the United States, BB Theaters is the largest family owned and operated circuit. In the united states it's actually the fifth largest circuit in the u.s number six when we talk about the north american market which combines u.s and canada they are located mostly in the midwest in the middle of the country and they've introduced a variety of concepts not only in premiums but also other types of innovations into their circuit they've got this screenplay concept that brings in a children's play area uh, in specific auditoriums for those family audiences. They've brought in a live performance space in one of their multiplex locations, and they have their own PLF concept, the grand screen, which is powered by the CGS and ionic solution. Why don't we let Bob Bagby tell us a little bit about how BNB theaters is exploring premiumization in their circuit. We just put in our very first laser projector. We put in the Cineonic
4: powered by CGS, in our theater in Blacksburg, Virginia, in our large uh, grand screen. It was extremely impressive, and obviously that's something we are going to do as some of the Series Ones and things are needing replaced. Very expensive, so you know there's a lot of lot of things we have to work on, but that's something we'll be investing in. Uh, the other thing I would mentioned earlier, some of these larger theaters that have more screens than we need, you know, we're doing some things like taking out screens and gutting it and turning it into an uh, entertainment center with, you know, bowling and arcade and, and uh, bigger bars and things of that nature. Uh, we, we found during the pandemic, particularly when things kind of cleared up, but the studios still weren't giving us money that the bowling provided some steady revenue for us. It's expensive to put in, but uh, ultimately, uh, you know, it's something we're definitely looking at. So I think you'll see us putting in several more entertainment centers in the coming years.
1: And that was Bob Bagby, CEO of B&B theaters talking about their premium strategy. I mentioned this a second ago, Rebecca, how they've introduced other types of concepts. Let's bring Bob back on to speak about this screenplay idea and how they've incorporated live performances in some of their locations as well. Screenplay is something that we have in a few
4: locations. We actually have like a playground in the auditorium. The kids can play 30 minutes before the movie. You have a small upcharge and then the kids, you know, sit down and watch the movie. And yes, they do sit down and watch the movie because they're excited to see the movie. We always say it gets their wiggles out, right, before the movie starts. And our whole thing is, i take my grandkids and they are not good all the time you know they're they'll be the young ones are talking when they get up but it doesn't bother anybody else in there because we all have kids and so they all kind of get it so we just want to start them young and going to the movies and, and their love for the movies the other thing we you know a lot of us have big you know 18 24 screen whatever complexes that we just obviously don't need that the, the market has changed and so we're looking at how to use some of those auditoriums. You know, our sweet spot is 12 to 14 screens, maybe. And then what do we do with those other screens? And in in our Shawnee location, we put in B&B Live, which is a live performance space. And I was telling you guys before, we use it for, we work with a partner of a local theater group that does musicals and plays, but we also rent it out for dance recitals. And we have the Miss America and the Miss Kansas pageants there, all kinds of things. But the clever thing that I did after being a father raising two daughters, I built the bar right outside that auditorium. So you can go out, have a beer, watch the game, and then somebody from your family can text you, okay, she's getting ready to go on. That's been very popular. Uh, we're doing some other crazy things. One of our places we have taken out all the seats and put in bicycles for a spin class. And so you can, you know, be – writing on the you know watch the big screen and as you're writing and you're going down the aisles and uh, so that's been interesting we all have a, have a comedy club in one of our places so we're just trying to think of anything out of the box that gets people in our buildings and when they're in our buildings they see our posters and maybe they'll come back and catch a movie and while they're there hopefully they buy some popcorn
2: And I I do want to point out, uh, Daniel, that Bob Bagby did specify that those spin classes in the movie theater, those are not feature length films. They are trailers. (laughs) They are shorts. People are not showing up to eat popcorn and exercise on a spin machine during like a three hour Batman. What
1: would you like to watch? Maybe drive my car. Just if you're on an exercise bike for the three hours of drive my car, that might be a good workout. You never know. Might, no. get, might not smell too good by the end of it.
2: And as I mentioned before, we also had Anthony Laverde, CEO of Imagine Entertainment, another chain that, like b and over the past two years has grown when it comes to both locations and screen counts. It is the ninth largest circuit in North America cracking the top 10 for the first time. And like b they've done some really innovative things surrounding alternative content, alternative programming. Um, they have their Imagine After Dark series where it's a kind of like B&Bs, you have a live performance venue. Um, Anthony actually estimated that last year, there was a record 5% of Imagine's revenue that came from alternative content and uh what huge. It, it's huge and and one of those yeah. things that they actually launched in december this really caught my eye when i when i saw it i'm not a betting person i'm not a vegas person but they took uh one of the auditoriums from one of their theaters in their home state of michigan and turned it into this big fancy looking uh sports betting venue so uh, i Kinda was like a
1: vegas sports book concept right but just mm-hmm. on a like big screen, that's interesting, especially now as sports betting is becoming more normalized here in the states, as it's legal in more and more places. That's fascinating,
2: and it's also uh, it's also a concept that we've uh, more recently seen Marcus theaters uh, kind of dip their toe into as well. But let's hear from Anthony on the subject.
5: We had actually thought about this concept and and began the process um, pre COVID, so. Uh, with the advent of of online wagering uh, in the state of Michigan and and now many other states we operate in, we we really wanted to bring bring Vegas to our guests. And as Bob said earlier, we we had the capacity, the extra capacity to change a a auditorium and and make it a full feel of a Vegas style sports book. And it's it's 42 feet of LEDs. It's heated recliners. It's Wooden tables to hold your laptop or or your device while, while you're you're placing your wagers and full service to your seat. And we we really thought that you know you don't need to fly to Vegas to have the Vegas experience of a sportsbook. And in most cases, you don't have to drive a few hours to to your your closest local casino. So um, it's it's the first one we have in our our Royal Oak, Michigan location, and we certainly intend to build more and we're looking forward to partnering uh, pretty soon here with a national operator to to really have some fun
1: with it. And you mentioned, Rebecca, that Marcus Theaters was actually doing something similar in their Gurney, Illinois location. They're calling it The Wall, they're branding it. Really interesting to see exhibitors dip their toe into different ways to engage moviegoers with non-movie content. Now, at the core of this, we can't forget these are still movie theaters. I'm I'm glad that that they're finding a way to thrive, to bring in more people to succeed with alternative content, but they still have to provide that classic movie going experience for their audiences. And in that context, one of the questions you asked during the webinar, Rebecca, was, was one that we actually got some really good responses on, which is reactions to the mergers and acquisitions activity. That M&A activity that we're seeing here in the business as theaters acquire other locations from circuits that have either gone under or are offloading specific sites. Imagine b and and Alamo, all of them being active in this MA space. Anthony going into detail on his reactions to this trend.
5: We're still looking at opportunities, uh, even even till today. These require a little more due diligence on our part. We, we're not as familiar with some of the markets we're looking at. Um, I certainly think that controlling your your destiny is important and building yourself a, a moat. You know, I think in southeastern Michigan and some areas of Minnesota, we we have a nice moat and brand loyalty. And when you're looking at acquisitions, uh, it can't be overscreened and and it it has to give you the opportunity to reward that capital that gets deployed to make those buildings. Uh, what we would consider imagined standards. I certainly think we're going to see a tremendous amount of M&A here over the next two years. I think scale is going to matter in the business going forward. And hopefully we, we have more content to show. But if you have scale, you can you can produce your own content and you can deliver it in different methods. I mean, I think you can film a band in one auditorium and stream it out to all your locations and have your own ticketed event. I think there's there's multiple ways to provide scale, to use scale to your advantage.
2: Yeah. You know, there are still such uh, seismic changes that are happening in the exhibition industry in North America. You know, I, I was fascinated to hear Bob Badby talk about how his B&B theaters has, uh, you know, 20, 22, 24 plexes. And that's just too big now. You just don't have the content. You need to figure out other things to do. And I think, you know, as the industry kind of wrestles with what it means to be a movie theater and what sort of content and what sort of experience you provide, how will that affect the market as a whole? Here we do have uh, Bob Bagby kind of providing his prediction, his take on how M&A activity will affect the industry, specifically when you look at the fact that as reported in the most recent MPA theme report, there actually was not that big of a decrease in screen count in uh, the United States since the pandemic, really only 1%. So we really haven't seen much close.
1: That's right, from 44,000 to 43,000. It was just a really modest drop there, as you mentioned, Rebecca.
4: I still believe there's going to be a lot of changes coming. There are a lot of theaters in this industry that have not been remodeled. If you don't have a, an updated theater with recliners, people just don't go. If you're in a market that doesn't have it, and we still have some, we're 80% recliner, but there's still some, and we see that people aren't coming back as fast. And so I think you're going to see some closures. I think you're going to see some opportunities for for that. Some maybe need to go away because it's over screen, but I think there will be some great opportunities for, Those people that are aggressive and willing to invest because we believe in the future and you you provide that comfortable seat and a bar and great, clean facility and good customer service, people are going to come back. And so I think you're going to see a lot of continued change. But again, like you said, I've never heard the 1%. That's really interesting statistic because I thought it was a lot higher than that. There will be some that will close I think most are going to survive because unless they're an overcrowded be- because there's going to be someone step up like the guys on this call who've stepped up and, and done a lot of incredible things. Uh, we got to be innovative. We've got to keep uh, looking for what is the next best thing to keep our customers engaged. But I, I think there may be some changing of hands of theaters, but I think you're not
1: going to see a big uh, reduction in screen count. And that was Bob Bagby, CEO of B and B Theaters, talking about this M and A activity here in exhibition as we see the North American market realign itself, emerging from the pandemic. And one of the other executives that joined us in this panel, Rebecca, was Tim League from Alamo Draft House. Tim founded the first Alamo Draft House in 1997 as a mom and pop theater with his wife. And it's now grown to be one of the biggest exhibition circuits in the country. A fantastic story, but as it's grown, Alamo has also gone through some growing pains, going from that identity of a local community theater to adjusting in operating as a nationwide circuit. So. That's why it was really interesting to hear his insights on what the opportunities and risks that M&A can provide to movie theaters like Alamo Drafthouse.
0: I think if local theaters can do the table stakes like we've mentioned of Great picture, great sound, and uh, uh, floors that aren't sticky. Just clean facility. Uh, you have a leg up because you can instill loyalty much more uh, within the the local community just naturally, just by being awesome and and loving movies. And it's as we grow, that's the, that's, the, that's my number one challenge: is how can we, you know, we know we're a chain, but can we can we see ourselves as a loose collection of uh, local theaters? Uh, and so the M&A, uh, we're certainly pursuing uh, growth opportunities. I think there's opportunities out there. Um, we want to tackle them. But when we tackle them, we can't let the the core experience and the the dedication to being a part of the community and uh, and, and sharing our love of the movies that uh, that we care about, like letting that enthusiasm happen, letting uh, a local folks in each in each market have a voice, a meaningful voice, and and provide the personality uh, of our of our theaters. I think. What M the big problem of the massive M and A that uh, that happened in the '80s and the '90s was sort of a, a sanitizing of the experience. You lost all the personality, and it was a, it became a commodity business. So I fear M and A, and yet we're going to try to do some. So, uh, but I do it um, with uh, with grave concern that we don't destroy what I think is the most important thing about who we are, which is our our personality and love of movies.
2: And really, Daniel, I think that's a great way to finish off this conversation. It's a great conclusion to come to. You know, I I certainly don't uh, want to see the industry go back to the generic suburban mall movie theater experience of the 80s and the 90s. That's what I grew up with. And I'm fine leaving that one in the past.
1: (laughs) We're not we're going to miss those awesome carpets, though. That's the one thing we're not going to get. I I would love to get one like that sort of carpeting in my house. I I think it would look fantastic, like some sort of like space age brown and black just all over, wall to wall. Let's see, let's see what happens. (laughs) Thank you again to Tim League, Bob Bagby, and Anthony Laverde for joining us in that box office giants of exhibition panel that we held through our box office pro live sessions webinar series. And if you want to catch that webinar in its entirety, you can find a video recording of it on our website, boxofficepro.com. Just click on that Giants of Exhibition tab. It'll lead you to a link hosting a video recording of the entire hour long panel. Well, Rebecca, it was another great episode, and thanks again to Sean, who joined us earlier to give us the latest insights on the movie-going recovery effort. The Box Office Podcast is going to come back next week. As always, new episodes every Thursday. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to rate us, don't forget us to subscribe. Tell your friends this is interesting. We always appreciate the support. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with The Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. On behalf of myself and my co-hosts, Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins, thanks again for joining us.